Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to the launch of this year's performance tracker. I'm the IFG's chief economist, Gemma Tetlow, and we're delighted to have partnered again this year with the Chartered Institute for Public Finance and Accountancy to carry out our annual stock take of the performance of public services. Using a vast range of data, Performance Tracker assesses what's been spent on public services and what's been achieved for that money across nine key public services and looking at whether performance has been improving or deteriorating. And this year's publication in particular looks at how public services have fared during the pandemic and what the key issues are that the Chancellor will need to address in next week's spending review. I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague Graham Atkins, who's led Performance Tracker work this year and will give a brief overview of the main findings of that work, and also by an expert panel with a range of experiences and backgrounds to help us reflect on these issues. We have Justine Greening, who's been Secretary of State at three departments, Education, International Development and uh, Transport. We have Mike Driver, uh, who's now president of SIPFA, had a long career in the civil service, including being the chief financial officer for the DWP and the Ministry of Justice and serving as the head of the government finance function. And we also have Anoush Shakelian, who is Britain editor for the New Statesman and specialises in writing about British politics, policy and social affairs. Before we get started, a few brief housekeeping notes. Please do start putting your questions into the Q&A um, and we'll put those to the panel uh, after the presentations. Um, if you see a question that's similar to one you were thinking of answering, asking, um, please just upvote uh, the previous question and we'll, that will come to the top of our list and we can um, ask the most popular ones. Um, if you're happy putting in your name and where you're uh, tuning in from, please do. It's always interesting um, to know where we're reaching. Uh, we'll be live tweeting this from at IFG events, so please do tweet along. Uh, this event is obviously on the record uh, and a video and recording of this event will be up on our website within 24 hours in case you miss any of it or want to catch the highlights again. Um, we're going to kick off though first with um, some remarks from Jeff Matsu, who is SIPFA's Chief Economist. So Jeff, over to you. Thanks Gemma. SIPFA is pleased to be partnering with IFG for the fifth year running. Tracking performance matters because we all care deeply about how government spends taxpayer monies. But the focus next week will be on the size of the spending envelope and how it's apportioned. Maximizing value, efficiency, and effectiveness in that spend is just as important. At SIPFA, we collaborate with public managers who are tasked with delivering service policies and spending plans to a set budget. That's achieved by encouraging the use of financial information when making decisions to manage risks, prioritize resources, and improve allocative efficiency. Supporting financial literacy across all levels and areas of governments can improve budget forecasting and public service demand management as well. Indeed, during periods of financial stress, such as over the past 18 months, this can enable corrective actions or facilitate exit strategies. At CIFA, we embrace a whole system approach. And we think it's fundamental to understanding how public finances can best be managed by recognizing the interconnectedness of organizations. Public financial management mobilizes financial resources that influence and enable public sector goals such as leveling up. Policy outcomes are strengthened when there is a deliberate coordination that seeks to optimize total performance rather than the individual parts. This involves linking the management of public resources to service delivery with mechanisms in place for appropriate checks and balances. But of course, policymakers invariably face trade-offs. 
While outcomes need not be zero sum, choices have to be made as to where and how to allocate limited funding. Public bodies should ultimately demonstrate the value of their expenditures, thereby contributing to improved, sustained performance across all of government. This can be informed by data on cost and key performance indicators, such as the one that we're going to be um, showcasing today. And we can then use this kind of metrics to compare with those of similar organizations to generate ideas for improving overall efficiency. Meanwhile, in an environment where demand pressures from service users often exceed available resources, it's crucial that sourcing strategies deliver the maximum benefit for communities. To optimize the impact of and leverage additional value from procurement and partnering, governments should identify critical success factors and pressure points throughout their supply chains. Early and systematic preparation to improve procurement performance can strengthen the overall ecosystem and promote resilience. Indeed, objective advice on how to coordinate and sequence reforms for the better use of public funds relies on an understanding of future financial resources. This would be supported by funding streams that are generally less fragmented, more flexible, and longer in duration. Of course, the funding itself needs to be proportionate to the task and responsibilities at hand. Financial liabilities that can't be maintained are counterproductive to good policy. Ultimately, it's resilience of local communities and regions that allow for more effective engagement with, with whatever funds are available. Investment activities will ultimately be restricted if public leaders are unable to balance the budgets due to financial difficulties or uncertainty. The capacity to anticipate future shocks or cope with them when they arise will affect government's ability to maintain good financial performance or the satisfactory performance of service provision. The accounting and finance profession can better equip government to withstand such challenges by identifying possible areas of financial vulnerability. Finally, a key theme in this year's report is that money alone isn't the answer to sustained improvement in government performance. We must strengthen awareness of organizational capacities that can lead to the more effective management of financial resources. Managing finances in the public sector is about much more than accountancy, of course. It's integral to the country's financial health and to making critically important services available to all people. I very much look forward to the panel discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. And it's I totally endorse everything you said there. And it's really good to be working again with SIPFA with this sort of shared belief that understanding more about the performance of services and really how that public spending is turned into the sort of outcomes that people really care about is exactly why we at the IFG have felt for the, the last five years that it's important that we do this sort of stock take of the data that's available and understanding the performance of those key services. Um, so with that, let me hand over to Graham, who can outline for you what were the key uh, conclusions that we reached on the basis of that very detailed data analysis. Great. Thanks, Gemma. So 2021 has been a pretty exceptionally disruptive year for public services. And in this year's performance tracker, we again looked at nine of the key services we have before. That is general practice, hospitals, social care for adults, social care for children, the rest of local government, which we tend to group together and call neighbourhood services, uh, police, prisons and criminal courts. So quite a long list. And really the key questions we've tried to answer this year 
what has been the impact of the pandemic? What legacy will it leave? And how much might it cost the government to address both that legacy and any longer term demand pressures? So this morning, um, I'm going to try in 10 minutes to run through three things. What the impacts of the pandemic have been, what and where the biggest future pressures will be, and what the choices facing SUNAC are next week. So if we start with the impact of the pandemic, I think there are three really big things to bear in mind. It's quite obvious, but public services have had to operate completely differently throughout the pandemic. GPs have conducted the vast majority of their appointments over phone or over video. Schools switched to remote learning for the most part for at least 17 weeks of the past two school years. And in other public services where perhaps the story is less well known, like prisons, you know, there's been mass installation of new telephones, the introduction of wider video calling facilities. In short, public services have been operating differently. Now, some of those changes um, have been, uh, were things that were intended for many years, but had been slow to catch on. Um, so GP triage and remote appointments have long been a government and NHS goal to achieve. And despite perhaps some of the recent newspaper headlines, we actually found that kind of rates of non-attendance for remote appointments are far lower, meaning less GP's time is wasted. The ability to get a next day appointment seems to have been easier, at least during 2020 and 2019. And perhaps remarkably, patient satisfaction, at least when it was measured in September 2020, was actually higher with general practice than it was pre-pandemic. So some of these changes, although they may not work for everyone, clearly have been quite beneficial. The flip side of that is that some others have been downright detrimental. I'm pretty sure, uh, not only from looking at the data, but if you were to speak to any parents over the last year, remote schooling has not been effective. For the vast majority of children, it's exacerbated existing inequalities and outcomes, largely as a result of children from disadvantaged backgrounds having more difficulties accessing resources and engaging sorry, actively. Sorry, Graham, do we have your slides? Do we have your slides? Uh, I believe we do. Um, I'm very sorry. I clearly didn't click share, which is maybe a sign that uh, despite my enthusiasm for changes in technology, uh, I haven't fully adopted all of them. So, sorry, let's go uh, back to where we were. So, um, although things have operated differently, um, some of that's been beneficial, but a large amount of it has, has been a kind of negative implications for access and equity. I think the second big change that happened during the pandemic is really to staffing. And here, I think the story is really interesting and not one that's often really told um, in great detail. So actually, during the pandemic, we saw quite big boosts uh, in recruitment and retention of public sector staff. So as the opportunities in the private sector labour market dried up, a lot of public service jobs became more attractive. Fewer people left and more people joined. So a lot more people applied to start initial teacher training. Remarkably, vacancies for care workers and children's social workers actually fell at the start of the pandemic and were lower than they were before. Unfortunately, this is very unlikely to continue. Um, so a lot of those positive trends have already fallen away. We now see that uh, care worker vacancies and adult social care are higher than they were pre-pandemic. And a lot of, kind of uh, applications for teaching courses have fallen away. And in the medium term, uh, over the next few years, COVID is going to probably worsen recruitment and retention pressures. So we know that it's been particularly difficult on staff working in public services. Really remarkably, the number of days that NHS staff took off due to mental health during the peak of the first and the second waves were actually higher than those days lost uh, due to sickness absence itself. So I think it's illustrative of just the, the volume of pressure on, on different staff. I think importantly, when you take this into account and the fact that the private sector labour market is recovering, 
Another pay freeze for public sector staff has happened after the financial crisis in the 2010s, would probably only worsen recruitment retention problems. The third point, and a really vital one that kind of the government will have to tackle coming out of this crisis, is that as a result of disruption operating differently and less things happening, there are now large backlogs. So I'm sure as kind of many people will be aware, the number of GP referrals to hospitals, that's how a lot of people start kind of getting onto hospital waiting lists, absolutely kind of fell through the floor at the start of the pandemic. And although they've increased since, as you can see, kind of at the right-hand side of that chart, they haven't quite got back to the level we would expect them expected them to have been at without the pandemic. Likewise, in hospitals, there have been far fewer completed patient pathways, that is, elective operations undertaken and finished. In children's social care, I think a story that's perhaps less well known is that there have been far fewer referrals to children's social care over the last year. Um, so there are 11% fewer between April 2020 and July 2021 than compared to previous years. And when you consider the kind of pressure cooker environment that families have been in, a lot of that is likely to reflect um, kind of children who would have normally been referred uh, otherwise. And likewise, in the Crown Courts, um, there were fewer cases heard during the pandemic. And there are 60,000 cases waiting to be heard at the end of June this year. So those are the impacts both on staff, on services and on backlogs. I'm now going to talk about where some of the biggest future pressures might be. It's worth saying that all services have a case for more money. There were clear pressures before the pandemic, and many of them can as well make a compelling case for their value in levelling up. I think the key question I want to kind of get at here is where pressures might bite quickly uh, when it comes to backlogs. So we know there are at least five quantifiable backlogs in the services that we looked at. Um, so I've just gone through those four. In schools as well, we know that pupils are far behind where they otherwise would have been without the pandemic. But although these services all have backlogs, it's worth distinguishing, I think, between ones where the government can take immediate action and ones where it couldn't. So in general practice, hospitals and criminal courts, although more money would help, there are real world kind of constraints on the number of trained staff, on the availability of theatre capacity and other things that mean that, at least in the short term, these backlogs can't be solved with more money. Perhaps in contrast, in children's social care and in schools, although social workers and teachers have undoubtedly have incredibly difficult pandemics, there are not the same kind of resource constraints as there are um, in those other services. So there's a difference here between where the government might act where it's cash constrained versus where it will find it harder to act where because there are real backlog shortages. I think there are two other services where it's really important to say there probably are backlogs, more people waiting for assessments, uh, inspections that haven't happened um, in environmental services and local government. But here, we don't really have a good sense of how large that backlog was before the pandemic, and we don't know a great deal about care workers and staff. So here there's a category of services where the government is effectively flying blind. It does not have the information that it needs to understand how, lo how large the backlogs are and whether it might be possible to tackle them. Um, perhaps in a slightly more positive sense, at least in prisons and the police, there aren't quantifiable backlogs. In fact, crime fell during the pandemic and fewer people were sentenced to prison as a result of court closures. So I think what all of this suggests is that at least seven services, we should expect performance, at least as measured by how long people wait um, and the size of waiting lists for particular services are likely to get worse over the next couple of years. But the government really lacks key information in a couple of services and some resource constraints mean this can't just be solved with more money.
So those are, I think, where the biggest pressures would be if you wanted to return performance to pre-pandemic standards. So I'm now going to set out just very briefly uh, the choices facing SUNAC and what, if, what we think the government should do. So broadly speaking, when the Chancellor steps up on the 27th of October next week, he's got to answer three questions. How much does the government intend to spend over the rest of the parliament? In what years does it intend to do that spending? And where is it going to allocate the money? Um, now, tackling backlogs would take more money than the government is currently planning to spend and would probably require that money to be spent up front. A lot of these backlogs will get worse and more expensive to fix the longer, the longer we wait to do it. Um, but actually, the government has effectively tied its hands um, in the way it's tackling with a lot of these because it's already set out how much money it intends to spend and there is not a great deal that hasn't already been allocated. So if we just look at how much money the government is planning to spend on day-to-day -day services over the rest of the department, it looks quite generous. So moving from left to right, we can see that in real terms, even taking account for inflation, the amount that the government has to spend on public services each year is going to, is going to increase for the rest of this parliament. Once we strip out the money that we know is going to the NHS and that we know will go to the Department of Health um, after following the health and social care levy, a lot of that is accounted for. Once we take into account schools, which have a settlement up to 2022-23, and which we have assumed will stay flat in real terms for the rest of the parliament per pupil. Once we take into account defence and overseas aid, that remaining blue bar at the bottom, you can see, really isn't very large. In fact, if we look at the kind of percentage change uh, in spending after this year, you see that total spending is going to increase, but it's actually going to fall all these other services that don't have a settlement next year and it's still going to be lower than it is right now in the year after that. So that overall profile doesn't make it a lot of sense. The government has already accepted for the NHS that tackling the backlog requires upfront investment um, and if it were to kind of take seriously the backlogs in other services we'd expect that distribution to be front-loaded rather than back-loaded. But bearing those self-imposed spending constraints in mind, we think any government should be doing three things. The first is that it should publish a clear plan alongside any money allocated to tackle backlogs. As discussed earlier, not all of it can be solved with money, and it's critical to be clear about where services will find the staff and resources they need to do so. The second is the government really needs to evaluate how well these new ways of working and technologies are being used in public services. We know quite a lot about how well they work, um, for professionals, but we know a lot less about how well they work for users. Remote trial protection conferences and virtual criminal court proceedings in particular should be priorities to understand more about. Data collection. I know it's very easy to sit in a think tank and say that we need more information about something, and perhaps it's just a little easy, but it's really worth saying in two critical services in local government and adult social care, the government does not know how large the backlog is, and it is not collecting the information it needs to understand how large it is. But we have a lot of detailed information about how many people receive care in the NHS. We won't know how many adults and children receive publicly funded care during the pandemic until next Thursday. That's not acceptable. No government can make good spending decisions without understanding how its choices affect performance. So, and what gets measured is ultimately what matters, unfortunately. So addressing this and uh, collecting better data to understand how well services are performing needs to be a priority for this government. 
with that in mind, I'm going to stop presenting and hand back over to Gemma. Thank you very much, Graham, for that fantastic whistle-stop tour of the, the publication. Um, Justine, can I come to you first? Graham has outlined sort of what the, the hard-nosed data analysis tells us, but I'm really interested to hear from you, having been a minister acting in, in spending reviews, how do spending reviews actually work on the inside? How much is this politics and how much do the, the data and the sort of analysis Graham just presented play into it? Well, I think Graham set out a really um, holistic set of the challenges that are faced by government and and as you say Gemma um, I was a Treasury Minister and we did the emergency budget back in 2010 um, I ran three spending departments but also I'm an accountant by training so actually for me all of these processes I was part of and involved in um, were very interesting in relation to how they contrasted to all of the very same decisions and processes that I've seen taken um, in industry. And I think the reality is there's almost two aspects of this. One is the challenges and um, Graham set out some of the, the more granular challenges. I think inflation clearly is something that probably even since this work was done um, by SIPFA and the Institute for Government has rapidly risen up the agenda and seems likely to, to remain there. But broadly, you have challenges around the politics, and that does matter. The ability to actually, in a democracy, deliver a programme of spending um, isn't an irrelevant issue um, and will, I think, be somewhat challenging for the government to navigate through, just as it was back in 2010. Um, there's also, obviously, the wider economy and what's that? what that's doing in relation to taxation and, and revenues. And... Whilst we're talking about spending today, clearly it's set in the context of a, a bigger picture on, on economic health and the uncertainty really post-COVID as to how that growth uh, will go in the coming um, months and years. And I think finally, um, certainly for my experience in Treasury back in 2010, there's also at times an issue of the markets and ensuring they stay on board with a broader government fiscal strategy and that isn't um, a uh, an irrelevance um, today uh, so that's also something that no doubt will be front of mind I think the big issue from my perspective and in my experience is almost the capacity of government and in particular Treasury to navigate what are some very difficult short-term pressures that have been set out whilst also not losing sight of a long term strategy on levelling up and the fact that actually levelling up is very, very much an economic strategy as well as a wider social one because actually it is fundamentally about unlocking more talent from more people and that fundamentally is going to be at the heart of how we raise productivity levels. And that fundamentally is at the heart of how we have a UK economy that is more productive and producing more revenue and that allows, if you like, a, a sort of wider spending environment for ministers to act in. So I think the big challenge actually um, is how they strike those, those um, balances. And it certainly was not easy um, in government. Most of my processes I was involved in on spending reviews, I was running spending departments and in 
practice you are looking at how the bids you can make relate to your own spending pressures and priorities, but also then how that sits alongside a wider government picture and how you can marry those two up to improve your chances of having a successful bid. I think the challenge is often that you will set forward a comprehensive plan, but only then receive part of your allocation. And I think one of the uh, issues for all secretaries of state is the the inability to actually have a comprehensive plan on enough areas of your policy portfolio and the low balling across government of investment that subsequently then does play out in outcomes that are often not what you had hoped and actually wanted to get when you were pulling together your policy proposals. And I think Children's Services is a good example of where too often that forward look hasn't been looked at from Treasury. So I think we can have a, a longer discussion about, if you like, Treasury's capacity. But my view um, is that it isn't fit for purpose in relation to being able to deliver levelling up. It remains the great unreformed department in government, both in terms of people, processes, systems and its culture. And actually, um, this is something that will at some point need to be addressed if we're going to have decision making that better reflects the need for um, understanding how to invest in human capital for the long term, takes more of a long term view, takes more of a strategic view rather than, in my experience, often a piecemeal approach on funding announcements that really are not the same as strategies. Um, and I think those are the challenges, really, that, that Rishi Sunak and his department face as part of the CSR. Can they break out of this straitjacket almost that Treasury has given itself for lots of reasons, which is they see like writing checks and the power that brings. But fundamentally, I think it's leading to a short termism that underinvests in um, human capital and as a result then leads to a lower productivity economy. And we can keep on talking about getting to a higher productivity, higher salary um, economy, but actually we do need to understand that that probably starts with education. And I think as we've just set out, um, we can see where there'll be squeezes on many, many departments. Thank you, Justine. Loads of really interesting points there, which I'm sure we'll come back to later in the discussion. Mike, uh, coming to you next, you spent many years in senior finance roles within government. From your experience, what, what works well and what doesn't work so well in the spending review processes? No, thank you. And uh, I should say I agree with um, many of the things that Justine has just said as well. So um, I think where I'd start really is that uh, one of the things that doesn't work well is having single year spending reviews. So they had their place because of some of the, the real challenges that we had as a um, as a country, but uh, we do need to move, put them behind us. They're budgeting events, they're not planning events, and we need to be thinking about how do we plan as we move forward. So I think, you know, building on that, I would say 
that what is right this time around is to have a multi-year spending review. Uh, they work better, they allow greater transparency, and through that transparency, I think we have better planning. Um, obviously, there are going to be adjustments made over the period of the spending review as events occur and changes need to be made to plans, but we should set out the, a, a basic vision, a more strategic vision for what we're trying to achieve over a period. I'd also argue that the time horizon for effective capital investment uh, in infrastructure in particular should be over an even longer period. We can't constrain capital expenditure to three-year time horizons. Moving on from that, I'd say that there are some really great examples of cross-government working, but we should really strive for even better collaboration across organisations so that systems are considered rather than just departmental interests. The two I draw out in particular are around uh, social justice issues or criminal justice issues. You know, there's no point having more and more police officers if the courts just can't keep up with the workload associated with them. I also think, uh, and Justine touched upon this, there needs to be a very clear focus on the outcomes that need to be achieved and also importantly on productivity. And we need to move away from having too many conversations which are just about uh, input measures, how much cash we're going to spend on a particular, um, a particular issue. And importantly, we mustn't lose sight of value for money across systems as we go through spending reviews. I'm personally a fan of zero-based reviews. I think they avoid rolling forward uh, spends just for the sake of it. And also, and um, we've talked a couple of times already about data and insight, um, spending reviews are a great opportunity to bring together that strong data, that strong insight, to use that data across uh, the whole breadth of what we're trying to achieve in government. Uh, but as I say, I think the multi-year approach is probably the most important thing and thinking about how we, we really focus on those outcomes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. And Anush, you come at this from a, a very different angle. You perhaps are on the outside of government looking in and commenting and reporting for the, the public. What are the sort of issues that real people are looking for from the spending review next week and what would you be expecting it to be addressing? Um, I've been really interested in what everyone um, has been saying so far because the services that you've been mentioning that are likely to be squeezed in the spending review, well, further squeezed in the spending review next week, have um, a direct impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. And we should remember that this is the, in the context of things already being quite difficult um, in terms of uh, what people have been through during the pandemic, you know, children falling behind on their learning, um, people losing work. Um, and on top of all of this, the universal credit uh, end of the uplift, the £20 a week uplift, inflation, rising energy bills. Um, and of course, we've got that tax rise in April next year as well. And while the government likes to talk about wages going up, there is actually higher competition for jobs in lower paid sectors at the moment. So that is also making things difficult. Um, and that's what I've been hearing from people who I've been speaking to about this sort of winter squeeze that we're about to face. So in the context of that, I think if you see these these um, areas of spending that don't have a spending settlement yet, so everything that's sort of not covered by the NHS spending, defence, international development schools, so things that 
uh, other speakers have mentioned, like police, prisons, courts, uh, and then of course international trade, the business department and uh, uh, local government um, and other areas, spending will be incredibly tight um, for those services. Um, and so the real impact, real life impact of all of this is that the quality of people's public services uh, will reduce um, and the pressure will rise on those services that have already been struggling, particularly in local government. Um, and I think one of the uh, impacts of this politically will be that people may not necessarily see the fruits of what many voted for. So the levelling up agenda um, and other sort of rebalances of inequalities in the economy that I think uh, this government has made a central plank of its um, of its appeal to the public. So I think that could potentially have um, a political impact. Um, so I think one of the challenges will be finding will, will be for the Treasury finding ways to ameliorate some of these uh some of these difficulties particularly the the universal credit cut um as well as trying to tackle those other issues the transition to a net zero economy for example and also those uh policy areas that they probably would rather not have to focus on like the building safety crisis um i think justine used the word low balling and i think there has been quite a lot of that in terms of the building safety crisis so far um sort of the the cost of cladding falling on the shoulders of uh lease holders for example as well as in school uh catch-up spending and on top of that you know the areas that have got uh, spending allocated to them in the spending review that we already know about that that spending might not be enough you know it's unlikely that the money that that we'll be getting from the new levy um will actually clear up those that backlog that record backlog that is putting so much pressure on the nhs without being able to address the quality of social care provision because of course the money left over that hasn't been gobbled up by the nhs um will come in in years to come for social care um, and obviously that, you know, many people who work in the social care um, sector would say that's the wrong way around because the pressures uh, in spending on social care and, and local government um, cause a knock on effect onto the NHS. Um, and as well as this, the, the schools catch up spending probably won't nearly be enough to help children catch up to the point um, where they were before the pandemic. So I think that's another political danger as well for the government because while you're seeing your money going out uh, on this tax, you, you are unlikely to see the fruits of it. Um, so those are my sort of initial thoughts on the impact on people's day to day lives and the political vulnerabilities that they could cause. Thanks very much, Anish. Several of you in those remarks touched on this point about sort of an excessive focus on the money going in. Um, and the Treasury not really understanding the services that they are agreeing settlements for. Uh, now, a few years ago, uh, Theresa May introduced this new public value framework, intending to have more of a focus on the outcomes that are trying to be achieved from public services and having a much clearer sense in making spending settlements of how that money is expected to be turned into improved outcomes and improving the metrics used to monitor that. Um, Mike, perhaps I can come to you first. To what extent do you think that new public value framework is having an impact in the way that settlements are made and is it helping? Well, I think the simple answer is I, I do think it is helping. I do think uh, public value in government is about ensuring that the benefits uh, that are given to citizens from the funding available is maximised. So that means making sure 
you know, the most of every single pound is made by making our policies, you know, our programs, our services as efficient as possible. So I think, um, you know, you mentioned um, Theresa May. If I could just sort of mention that the Barber Review in 2017, um, which was commissioned, I think, by David Gork and Philip Hammond, actually, um, and it was, you know, thorough in its recommendations and said, you know, firstly, a review, a renewed focus on outcomes for citizens and using high quality data to support it. And secondly, that there needed to be a public value framework, that systematic approach to maximising outcomes for citizens was absolutely important, absolutely vital. So I would very firmly believe that outcomes are the real world impacts that departments should be aiming to achieve. You know, these are set out in you know outcome delivery plans for departments and all of those are reported against. And I certainly agree that being outcome focused um, must be the right approach if we are clear on the following. So, you know, what are the clear objectives? How will we manage inputs through shrewd management um, of um, financial resources and the effective use, I mentioned this before, of, of data and also a forecast? You know, how do we ensure, ensure legitimacy through the engagement um, with our citizens? And finally, how do we, you know, develop, as I mentioned before, really strong system capability. Now, I'd argue that the public value framework is really improving how government makes spending decisions and it tests itself through self-assessments, reviews, costing projects, all of those different things. And, you know, I do think, and Justine was saying she's an accountant, I'm an accountant too, I do think that finance professionals have a huge part to play here. And during my three years or so as the head of the government finance function, our vision was and remains, you know, to put finance at the heart of decision making, really driving the agenda and not just keeping score. Finance cannot just keep score. And I think huge progress has been made towards delivering that more mature financial management, evidence-based policy and operational decision making uh, system. But I do think that um, that focus on uh, certainly outputs, but ideally outcomes, should be at the centre of that. I hope that helps. It does. And Justine, you were a minister at the time that that Barber review was going on. Are you optimistic about the prospects of that, or do you think more needs to be changed in the way that spending is planned? I think we need much more of an overhaul about how um, spending decisions in Treasury um, is run actually. I think there's an issue on, as Mike said, um, skills. So Treasury um, has an awful lot of highly talented people and I, I love working with them. Um, but that's not the same as having the financial management skills that I would have expected to see having come from industry um, to manage numbers and to do financial management and to deliver business cases um, that really nail down what long-term value you're getting through investment and how you're going to track it. Um, the pr processes across government end up driving quite dysfunctional decision-making at times because effectively they are designed to give a Chancellor an announcement opportunity. And actually you have this dysfunctionality that I, I never worked in any major organisation. I worked in very big organisations. 
I never worked in an organization where the finance director got to give the main strategic speech of the year rather than the chief executive, um, which is effectively what the budget and comprehensive spending review often turns out to be. And I think in the meantime, often departments and their relationship with Treasury can be very, very, um, again, dysfunctional because Treasury feels that it needs to constantly batten down on the money. But actually, I think what it needs to do is take a much longer term strategic view of not just cash flow, um, but also government balance sheet, of course, but crucially also government PL and how it manages that profit and loss, as it were, on tax and spend to deliver long term value. And I think the dominant view of Treasury is managing cash flow. Now, if you're in the middle of a credit crunch, of course, um, that makes sense. But I think if it comes at the expense of taking functional decisions that maximise your long-term productivity and P&L, if you like, of UK PLC, then that can't be right. And we currently today face a skills crisis because of decisions taken in years gone by that have not been able to design an education system, for example, that is providing the high skilled people that our economy needs. And I think it's particularly pertinent for Treasury this year, because as we talked about, COVID is bringing forward lots of changes structurally, both in the economy, in how people work, in how they spend their money. And you either get ahead of that change and therefore try and shape it, or you simply just pretend that everything is going to stay as it was before, in which case you will continue to be overtaken by events, which I think would be a bad position for all of us to be in, but particularly government, obviously. Before I go to questions from the audience, I'll just use my final question as chair to come to the question of levelling up, which uh, most of you talked about in your uh, presentations and remarks um, and does seem like it will be one of those overarching uh, issues coming up in the spending review. But um, Anush, perhaps I can come to you um, first on this. What do you think the government needs to be doing in the spending review to show and to deliver on this levelling up objective? I think it's a really good question, probably the key question in terms of the government's sort of political objectives for this spending review. It was interesting at Conservative Party conference earlier um, uh, a few weeks ago when they were sort of trying to put a little bit more definition into what levelling up means. And Michael Gove, the sort of new levelling up minister, outlined it as about sort of strengthening local leadership, raising living standards, improving public services and um, I think giving people the resources necessary to enhance local pride. So all of those things, you know, they, they may sound slightly vague, but what I thought was really interesting is that they were not infrastructure focused. Um, they were more about governance um, and they were more about uh, levelling opportunities, living standards um, and sort of the, the quality of public services rather than the sort of big blockbuster kind of infrastructure projects that you may previously have associated with this 
policy. So uh, I suppose that will be the guiding, um, I suppose that will be the guiding sort of framework for the levelling up agenda. Whether or not that matches the expectations of the public uh, remains to be seen. There's really interesting research um, by Rachel Wolfe, actually a former number 10 aide who co-wrote the, the Conservative Party manifesto in 2019, who now does sort of public opinion stuff. Um, that in some focus groups that she did, she found that people are likely to associate levelling up much more with small changes to their high streets, so even down to the sort of hanging basket level. Um, so how much of this will people really be able to see before the next election if the focus in the spending review um, is going to be about the sort of less place-based, less, less physically tangible aspects of the levelling up agenda? So I think that's going to be a particular challenge. But I, I agree with what Justine was saying, which is, it all really should stem from education and seeing the sort of tussle over the catch up spending. You get the impression that they haven't quite grasped that yet, although obviously it remains to be seen what they'll come up with um, next week. There were also hints about raising the minimum wage um, and also changing the um, uh, changing the student financing system so that graduates will have to sort of start repaying their student loans when they're on lower salaries and existing graduates will have to see their current repayments rise. So we haven't heard anything about those two things yet. So they could also form part of the budget and spending review next week. Um, so uh, yes, all eyes I think will be on education according to how Michael Gove has, has laid out what levelling up is supposed to mean. Thanks very much. And Graham, I mean, what's certainly one strand of what's being talked about as levelling up is levelling up public services. So, and as you mentioned there, education, is there anything else you would point to as being an important aspect of levelling up public services? I suppose there's, there's two things that I think, uh, or two ways to think about it. One is the short term stuff about how you kind of enhance people's pride in their local areas. There, I think the key question for the spending review is how generous is the overall settlement for local government, which uh, for Whitehall watchers, you want to look at the December local government finance uh, settlement, which will tell you exactly how much money is going into where in local government. But I suppose the key point is if there are ongoing social care pressures for adults and children, which there will be, the, 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 the what's left over will really determine how much ability how much ability local authorities have to shape their local area. In the long term, I think Kanush and Justine are right about education probably being one of the single biggest public services that drives social capital and people's long run lifetime earnings. I think other services the government might want to look at and be considering are really where has the pandemic exacerbated existing inequalities? Education is clearly one area, but um, there was some interesting analysis of waiting times that was done recently that tended to show the largest increases in backlogs were in deprived areas. So again, I would be uh, to make a, a point from Mike wanting to use data and insight to work out where the pandemic has most exacerbated existing inequalities and therefore what should we focus when levelling up. Thank you. So coming to questions that have come in uh, from our audience, um, Justine, I'll put this one first to you and then probably come to Mike as well. So the, the uh, most popular question we have is um, how might we encourage even medium term strategic thinking when ministers are only attracted to and focused on immediate or short term outcomes? Do you have any thoughts on that, Justine? I think it requires some leadership and I think in practice it probably requires Treasury having a much longer time frame than three years, um, which might be okay for a company, but for a country, 
is obviously patently um, inadequate. And it's impossible to really model uh, long-term impacts on investment in children, human capital, on people coming out of the justice system, for example, and second chances getting lives on track if you're only willing to have a, a forward look of just three years. Absolutely impossible. So there are some practical issues that need to change here. Um, and I think going back to what Graham talked about, certainly with the work we've been doing on the Social Mobility Pledge, we've identified 14 distinct what we've called levelling up goals. And they are very clear about these 14 key challenges we face if you're going to systemically level up. And unless you actually address all of them, then the risk is it's like a leaky bucket where you continue to have inefficient spend because you haven't got a holistic approach and devolution and place-based agendas will be absolutely crucial. So government will now need to let go, including potentially, I think, on education um, and on things like business rates. If government at a national level is incapable of designing long-term policy that can be sufficiently tailored to deliver change on the ground over the long term, then it has to let go. And it's had that ability for long enough, let's face it. Then it has to now let go and allow, whether it's mayors or other more local county councils, it needs to provide devolution with the purpose of levelling up and, and look at what, what powers it needs to hand over in order for them to be able to get on with the job if government itself is not able to apparently do that. And I think the main test for ministers has to be, why will your fund or your change make a difference when governments have done rebalancing, done the Northern Powerhouse, they've done various regeneration funds, they've done enterprise zones? Why have all of those perfectly sensible sounding policy measures failed in the past? Part of the challenges that they've never been properly joined up at a place-based level they're never able to be being be properly tailored for the different challenges that different communities face this is complex and i i think whitehall has to accept that one size doesn't fit all and it is not in a position to know how to tailor and that's why it has to now seriously confront a devolution agenda thank you and Mike, is longer term thinking just about having even longer multi-year spending settlements or are there other ways we can get that sort of longer term thinking into government plans? Well, I do think we do need to have longer term thinking. I agree with Justine, absolutely. But I don't think we need to have it on absolutely everything. I think we need to think about the priority areas and that we want to pursue over time. You know, I don't think we've talked very much about COP26 or sustainability today, for example, how are we going to invest in that uh, effectively as we go forward? But I do think there needs to be a greater focus on what are true priorities. And that sometimes means saying, therefore, what aren't priorities and what's going to have to stop or change or be scaled back? Um, I think there is something about timeframes themselves because if you think about, you know, I, I think it was maybe Anushu talked about uh, defence very briefly. You wouldn't plan your defence, your, your defence deterrence 
on a three-year basis. You plan those over 20-year periods. So why can't we, we be thinking about social capital and other, other key issues of that sort over much longer uh, periods than is the case at the moment? So I think, and we've talked a lot about hybrid models, I think there needs to be a better hybrid model for prioritisation and investment in services as we move forward. Thank you. Um, Graham or Anish, did you want to come in on that question or shall we move on? Um, so the next question, um, I will read it as it's been put in, but you might want to um, interpret it uh, as you see fit. So the question is, now that the relevant department doesn't have local government in the title anymore, but instead has the name of the critical priority levelling up, how will the spending review find a way of making councils bear the brunt of cuts again? Um, now, of course, the this way in which funding for local government uh, works hasn't changed despite the name of the uh, department changing. So. Um, Graham, I'll come to you first. How do you think local government will fare in this spending review? And do you think the change in the name of the department will have any impact on, on the focus on local government? So I, I do think there'll be a change. Uh, I don't think it will be because of the name of the department. I think it will be because of the man in charge, uh, insofar as I think Robert Jenrick probably, uh, or Michael Gove will not have accepted the settlement that Robert Jenrick probably tried to negotiate. Um, I am, of course, speculating here, but I suspect that if I were in charge of levelling up, I would be asking for a more general settlement for local government. So that's one reason to the upside things going up. On the other hand, if you read the detail of the health and social care levy, which of course we did at the IFG, um, it was quite clear in the text that any kind of uh, existing cost and demand pressures would be met through council tax and further efficiencies, which certainly implies, on the other hand, uh, that it will be a very tight settlement for local government. So. Uh, I appreciate that's not a very good answer. Um, I think it will depend on how well Michael Gove argues for the importance of local government over the last couple of weeks. And Anush, are you detecting any change in the prominence of local government with Michael Gove now in charge of the department? Um, unfortunately for local government, not so far, although obviously he is new in his in his new role. I think there's been a real frustration, particularly during the pandemic, with how local government has been treated. Obviously, uh, it's had sort of that decade of, of cuts and then the money given for emergency coronavirus spending didn't seem to be anywhere near enough. Um, I think it was supposed to do sort of whatever is necessary. And I think many people <laughs> running councils would say that that didn't happen. We saw bank, well, we saw many councils on the brink of bankruptcy. We saw a council go bankrupt and we saw bailouts for council, councils as well. And it really, you know, when you speak to people working in local government um, and trying to deliver local government services outside of social care, I mean, just how squeezed it is, you know, it is sort of sort of on the brink of, of crisis. And I think the um, the idea of a government trying to level up a country, which, as we've just been speaking about, has to have some sort of place based physical um, aspects to it um, is it's sort of laughable if you don't do something about the way that you treat local government. Um, and it's almost like it's it's its role has been forgotten in rebalancing um, sort of inequalities in the economy and sort of. Uh, improving high streets and sound town centres um, and things like that. So from what Graham has been saying and from his presentation and from what, um, you know, what reporting and research I've done into 
where spending is likely to be allocated. It looks like it's just more austerity for local government again so far, but I suppose we'll we'll see next week. And Justine, having been a minister and worked alongside others, how do you think Michael Gove being in charge of the new DLUC department is going to affect that area of policy? Well, I think um, potentially it means that every department's now a part of the local government <laughs> delivery plan. Um, certainly in the DfE, when we were doing opportunity areas, which was our quite innovative approach on more place-based thinking on, on education, and that involved not just working inside schools, but outside schools. So taking that more systemic approach um, to drive education outcomes. I was very clear that had we taken that approach more broadly, and I'd like to see more opportunity areas announced because they are driving improved results, we would have fundamentally had to design a different DfE. So the skill set of our civil service officials would have had to be much more around project management, working hand in hand um, on the ground with local communities. It would have been far less on policy wonkery, if I can call it that, because actually a lot of the weight of that would have been coming from the innovation that was happening around the country and in opportunity areas themselves. A good example of what did happen was obviously the Bradford Glasses for Classes um, initiative where they get together with the NHS and work out that a lot of children there who have problems reading don't have the right glasses prescription. So I think what government probably needs to start understanding is that a place-based approach also means a significant overhaul of Whitehall in relation to the skills and how it works and how investment decisions are taken. I think the final point I make around Michael Gove's appointment is I very much welcomed his reference to what he called a, a social justice um, aspect of levelling up. When we were using this phrase in the DfE, levelling up, we knew exactly what we meant. It was about the role of education in delivering equality of opportunity. It was not particularly about the North or the South. It was a national issue that related to places and people. And so I think Michael Gove is right to tack back the narrative towards that. But that does present a very I think different, more comprehensive challenge um, that government now needs to, to run towards. And I think it needs to really think very creatively about how it can address some of those long-standing endemic issues around inequality of opportunity that have been made even worse by COVID. Thank you. Um, that's certainly something we're, we're very interested in here at the IFG. Um, I'd like to, just in our final two minutes, um, put to you one final question and uh, please do use the opportunity to make any final reflections you would like. So the question is, would it not make more sense for all Treasury submissions to be published in full ahead of the budget so parliamentarians and journalists know what department said to the Treasury, not what the Treasury has agreed to, so the Treasury can be properly held to account? Um, Graham, I'll come to you first on this. Would this be a fantastic innovation? It's a tricky question. Uh, I can definitely see the value of transparency we had at being able to hold who said what to account. This would be valuable, but I think on balance, I would say it's probably a bad idea because you want to preserve some private space for officials to have difficult conversations between departments and with ministers. 
what thing, one thing I think you could do within the existing system to improve things would be where you have kind of departmental performance indicators and, and plans to publish a lot of the data that underlies that isn't currently happening. So that wouldn't allow you to know who said what, but it would get you much closer to understanding what information the minister's being presented with, how are the decisions being taken, because currently that's quite opaque. And I think greater transparency, even if we don't want to publish exactly the record of who said what to whom or when, would be valuable. Mike. Um, I agree with what Graham has just said. I think there has to be some space to, prever uh, to preserve some, um, some private conversation. Um, I do think that though there are already some documents that people don't use enough, by the way. So I think the accounts produced by government departments have improved immeasurably over the past few years. And I think that uh, people should have a look at what the accounts are saying in terms of the risks that departments are bearing, have a look at the governance statements that uh, permanent secretaries are signing. And I think those documents could be used far better to hold uh, departments to account for what they are doing rather than just the submissions of what they say they would like to be doing in the future. Anush. Would you like to be poring over all of these submissions that have gone to the Treasury to come up with some stories? Yeah, I would. I have to say my answer is probably a little bit less complex than the <laughs> others, because I think the more information, the more transparency we have access to, the better for covering uh, these kind of stories. So for a geeky journalist like me, I, I would actually love access to, to that kind of information. I mean, just to follow up, do you, do you think it would lead to a more productive, informed public debate? Um, or do you think it would just cause the kind of nervousness within government that um, Graham and Mike were referring to? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good point that you might end up sort of not seeing the juice of the disagreements in those kind of documents because they might be having those conversations in a more informal way, knowing that journalists will be able to access access um, those documents. So so I agree it could it could sort of chill what people are are, are um, willing to put down on paper. Um, having said that, you know, usually we we get sort of an, um, anonymous briefings about what the ding dongs overspending are over. So maybe Maybe this would give us um, maybe this would allow a little bit more transparency for our readers as well as to what those what those debates are and, and who's pushing them as well. <clears throat> Justine, do you think that sort of complete transparency or some further step towards more understanding of the conversations that are going on with the Treasury would help with spending settlements? I think I think you do need some space of privacy. I think the transparency is really the adequacy of what actually the decisions are in relation to the outcomes they'll drive. You already have an OBR assessment, if you like, from a, a wider economic perspective, but it really is time, uh, I think, as Mike touched upon, to set out, from my perspective, a levelling up goals framework that then has metrics. And, and the key is then, I think, Treasury setting out the impact of its decisions on whether those gaps close or get wider in the longer term. And then you do end up with a transparency that allows the public to decide whether gaps are being closed fast enough. Even before COVID, the attainment gap in education was closing at a rate of 1% a year, which clearly isn't fast enough. And so I think it's that transparency on whether these are plans that are ambitious enough 
in order to deliver the agenda that a government has been elected to make progress on, in this case, levelling up and of course also net zero. Thank you very much. And certainly we at the IFG will continue to look at government's performance against its key targets and keep commenting on that to the extent that we can and pointing out where it's not possible to judge the government on its own objectives. Um, but I'm afraid I have slightly overrun, um, so we'll have to draw to a close there and apologies to everyone who put in questions that we didn't manage to get to. I'd um, just like to thank all of our panellists very much for contributing to today's discussion, to Justine, to Anish, to Mike and to Graham and to Geoffrey for his opening remarks. Um, huge thanks again to SIPFA for working with us again on this and thank you to all of you for joining us for today's event hope you can join us again for one in future thank you very much thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of ifg live please do subscribe to hear more and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk events